This podcast and others are brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. If you'd like to kick back a small commission from every Amazon purchase you make at no extra cost to you, please use and bookmark our special link at AmazonEVC.com. That's AmazonEVC.com. Today is May 7th, and my guest today is McKelly Boldrin, the Joseph Gibson Hoyt Distinguished Professor in Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. His latest book, co-authored with David Levine, is Against Intellectual Monopoly. McKelly, welcome to EconTalk. Hi, Russell, and uh, thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure. Now, our topic today are the ideas in your book and the general issue of what is called intellectual property. I would say that many, maybe most economists believe that invention and ideas, so-called intellectual property, they need to be protected by patents and copyright to give people the incentives to produce them. And I'd like to hear what that – from you, that standard argument that I was taught and believed and why you disagree with it. Yes, yes. Well, the argument we disagree with is basically the argument that uh, there exists such a thing as intellectual property. That is, uh, uh, that there is something that is meaningful and you could call the property of ideas. We think property rights should be certainly clearly defined and protected. I think uh, they're essential for markets to work and economic systems to work at large. We just find that this particular one is of the same class as tariffs and exclusive rights and monopoly rights, which one could concord as property as well, and not of the first type. And as such, they are overall inefficient. There are exceptions. We can go through the exception. We can go through the special cases as usual. But as a general principle, uh, we do not see neither a theoretical nor a practical reason to consider this property, the property of ideas. And, uh, well, if you want, we can go through the details step by step. Yeah, well, the standard, the standard theoretical argument in favor of patents and copyrights is that if I come up with a new idea and I work hard and invest all my time to create that new invention or idea, and if I don't have the exclusive rights to the concept behind it, then new competitors can come in very quickly, destroy any profitability from my all my hard work, and therefore the incentive to go through that hard work won't be there, right? That's the, that's the standard. That's the standard idea. Yeah. And that seems pretty compelling. I've always been pretty convinced by it. Uh, I have to say, reading your book, I'm starting to doubt it, which I think is healthy. So what's um, what's wrong with that standard idea? It seems pretty logical, right? Uh, well, let's go through it in, a, in, a, uh, in steps, and let's do it twice. So we look at it from two different points of view, okay? Let's look at it first from a kind of practical point of view, right? So I have these new economic ideas. Uh, entrepreneurs have new economic ideas all the time about, you know, opening a pizza parlor, opening a new store selling uh, genes in that particular street and not in that other one, making this gadget and not the other gadget, uh, going with the book uh, paperback versus uh, hardback, and so on and so forth, um, going with a cell phone that is also 
a little computer like your BlackBerry and like your iPhone, right? Um, we would, in any of these cases, we would not like the idea, the principle, that the first guy that opens the jeans shop or the, in that particular avenue has to have the exclusivity for selling jeans over there. That's his, that was his idea, after all. Or whoever had the idea of putting cameras into cell phone, that was their idea, after all, and so on and so forth. So competition, we think, in those cases is good. So we want people to have the possibility of imitating good ideas, trying to maybe do it even better, lower cost, increased capacity, and blah, 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 the old story we learned. Better quality. Right, better quality, and so on and so forth. So when we describe it that way, it sounds like we'll still be talking about ideas, right? But it sounds like it's, it works. We want to have imitation. In fact, even if in the mathematical model we pretend that imitation is just price-taking, we know that in reality what it is, it's, you look at what I do and see if I do anything interesting and good, and I look at what you do and I see if you do anything interesting and good and try to do the good things you do and not do the bad things and so on. We know that that's really competition, and to the extent we do similar things, then that leads to some form of price equalization. So I wonder why that applies only to some ideas and not to others. Well, let's do the argument in reverse again. People say, ah, it applies to some ideas because they have very high fixed cost of setting it up. And if you don't allow this person to reap some extra profit, some rent, as we call them in economics, right, rent, rents are the extra you get over your opportunity cost, then people would not be uh, uh, willing, knowing that, to set up, the, to, to, to afford the initial uh, fixed cost, to do the initial investment to come up with that specific idea. Well, okay, that's good again, that's a good argument, but if you think of it, when, go back to our textbook thing. By the way, neither David nor I believe that the basic theoretical point we're pushing is particularly new. In fact, in some sense, we resisted writing this thing for years. We were talking about it for years. Because before it was pretty obvious, we think it's Marshall. Oh, that would be Marshall. Alfred Marshall, who, British yeah, economist. Yeah, Marshall, Mr. Marshall, no, the old Marshall. British economist the at the turn of the 19th uh, Yeah, exactly. That 20th character. century, yeah. yeah, yeah. Late that, 1900s. If you look at 1800s. his description, which I think is our, still our Economics 101 description of how a competitive industry works, competitive industry, I insist, it works exactly like this. There is somebody that has a good idea. He thinks maybe we should enter in the market for shoes with laces, and he starts producing shoes with laces. And to do that, he sets up a, fa a factory, which implies a fixed cost. The factory has a certain capacity. Up to that capacity, it's constant return to scale with labor and intermediate input. He hires those people. He has a certain marginal cost of producing things, but because capacity is low and demand is high because it's a new idea, he's earning a rent, Marshall tells us. And that rent typically will cover the fixed cost of the factory and more. And then there is somebody else looking at him or her and say, hey, people like shoes with laces. I want to set up a factory too. Um, and they set it up and same story. And the rents obviously are going down because as new people enter or as the first guy expands, it doesn't matter under constant return, um, right? Capacity goes up, quantity sold on the market goes up and price has to go down along the demand curve until eventually the price got at that point in which 
the extra rents over the marginal cost covers just right, just right, the fixed cost of the lease plant, of the, la- uh, so the lease, sorry, of the last plant uh, built. And we say, oh, the industry reached the long-run competitive equilibrium. We look that we use this very pompous word. What we mean that at this point, unless there is some external shock that changes demand or changes cost, there will be no further entry in that industry. This works all very well. It's based imitation. It's the way we tell it to students. Why doesn't this work for most innovation was our question. And then we look at the data, we look at fact, we look at history, and we say, hey, wait a second, it does work for most innovation. In fact, the innovations covered by patents are a subset of innovations, been increasing historically because patent law has been extended. The field of application has been extended, has been growing enormously, but still there's a lot of stuff out there done like that. And so we said, well, so maybe those that get the patents, maybe it's not really needed. Um, so that's, that's the argument that we have against the standard argument. <laughs> many, many innovations, of course, take place without patents, uh, even today. Uh, an innovator has a choice. A patent has a cost, both the out-of-pocket cost and then the risk that by patenting the, the device or the idea that you open the opportunity for competitors to try to work around the patent. And so some people choose, some innovators choose not to patent and yeah. to use secrecy or other methods to, to keep their ideas quiet. But I, what I think is provo- particularly provocative about the book is, that, is your point that I think in the back of our minds, patents are the uh, seed that leads to the potential and then the reality, the fruit of innovation and effort. When in fact, historically, in many cases, maybe most, if not almost all, patents come in later in the game to keep out competitors after the innovation's already taken place. Uh, that seems to be a fact. That's another fact we so realize. Talk about that and why, uh, and the rent seeking, the, the public choice aspects of this problem. Well, uh, you said it much better than I can, as usual. You're pretty good at uh, articulating thoughts with simple words. That seems to be the pattern when one looks at the history of innovative industry. That seems to be the almost deterministic patterns of all of them. You look at all the big innovation of the 20th century. At the startup, at the, at the origin of the industry, there is a flurry, a large number of people, small firms typically, right? uh, the small innovators competing, struggling, copying each other like crazy, sometimes in a nasty way. But with very little patenting around, even if it were available. The classical example these days that everybody talks about, and even the big winner in that game talks about, Bill Gates, is um, software for PC and then the Internet. You know, the famous statement by Gates, my God, if we had patents and copyright in the 70s at the origin of the industry, there would be no software industry. That's, that's his word. I'm not literal, but... Uh, which is uh, shocking, literally. which is shocking, because I think in the back of people's minds, you know, if... What could be more problematic for uh, competitive innovation than software? It's easy, It's copied at, at almost zero cost, produced at zero cost. Yeah, but the problem that there was that this what what these guys correctly what's typically the case you see when a, a new industry comes around. Same for cell phones. Think about our cell phones. Yeah, they all have little gadgets that are patented, but they're all copying each other. They copied each other like crazy, right, uh, in the early years. If you think of what happens when something really new comes around, Russell, it's exactly what Marshall was describing with a simple formula, right? The stuff is so new, and the possibilities for reducing cost, improving the, pro- the, the product, making uh, uh, more um, 
attractive to the consumer, so large, and demand is so huge, that is the distance between, that what matters is to lower cost. Yeah. And so I lower cost by copying you, you lower cost by copying me, we're both gaining in some sense, and the opportunity cost of wasting my time fighting you legally because you copy me, it's just too high. I don't bother to do that because I rather spend my time, you know, innovating and trying to build up capacity to make money because everybody wants the new gadget. And there's sufficient profits in the early days. It seems days. to be. It seems to be, right? That's, you understand, one point that with David and I, we insisted very much, especially in the theoretical paper, it's less in the, in the book. The book has a name. I'm not sure we succeed, that we're not that good. I wish I had your ability to write things clearly. Uh, so, but we tried at least to write a book that you know can be read by the educated person it doesn't have to be an economy we took away every formula and so on but in the technical work that we did before writing the book that led us to this conclusion which by the way you know it was all stuff on growth and, and so on uh, we insist that the point that what we are suggesting why we think it's worth going back to marshall is that it does allow for patents or something similar to patents prizes and things of this kind to be sometimes socially useful in certain special circumstances. It's true, if the cost of innovating is gigantic, and it's really easy to imitate and copy, and and in particular if it is really easy to expand capacity very quickly, then my argument fails. So you understand, it's a quantitative thing. I'm not trying to... It's an empirical argument. It's an empirical argument. I'm not trying to say, look, I discovered some deep truth, you know, absolute truth in which it's always the case, you know, by definition, that's to be like I say. I say, look, here is a model that allows you to think of the problem and and you see where the trade-off is. It's between the fixed cost of innovation, the speed of imitation, and how quickly you build up capacity. How quickly you build up capacity. I want to encourage readers to to look at the book and read it, and if... It is available online at uh, no charge if you want. We'll put links up to that. Or you can have the version that you can – that's nicely bound and, and you can hold in your hands and you can pay for that. So you have your choice. But there's a, there's a lot of interesting historical case studies in the book. So I, I encourage – we're not going to have time to go through the, the histories that, that, you, that you tell in there and the stories you tell, which are very – very provocative. I remember resisting uh, for a long while, saying, okay, let's go in public and tell people that actually we think patents are not useful, are not necessary, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it was always this argument coming out of the theoretical model, which was essentially, a, a, if you, the thing I described before, Marshall made it a bit fancy, if you want. And then we always got to this conclusion and said, no, no, hold on, hold on, that sounds crazy, right? And then you look around and you study a bit of history, which actually we did. It was very interesting to go read tons of books and stories about actual innovations. Says, look, there seems to be a pattern. So, you know, let's take our chances and claim that empirically it doesn't seem to be an issue. Well, the, the two things I that come to mind listening to your point about it being an empirical question is I think in economics we have this terrible tendency to look for uh, proofs. So we prove that externalities, say, justify government intervention, and you know, there's a standard result we've been referring to that high fixed costs then justify uh, patents. But of course, as you point out, there's lots of cases, and it's an empirical question, where fixed costs are not particularly large or where there's so much opportunity for innovation and speed and profits initially that the fixed cost issue just simply isn't important. And then you have to look at what the incentives are for firms in that world. If you have patents available, 
you're going to turn to the government to try to keep out your competitors, even exactly. if they're not, even exactly. if there's no good economic case. But we as economists, unfortunately, then have given people the cover to uh, pursue their self-interest in ways that are socially destructive rather than socially productive. And the socially productive thing that I want to mention that is in the book and, and I think is an extremely important point is that while it may be true that imitation can very quickly lower the returns to all those uh, – all the effort that was made and can hurt profits and therefore could reduce the incentives – what that does, though, is it encourages the different competitors to compete on things other than just price. And so you find, and this is what I learned from reading some of your, your stories and histories, what you find is firms looking for ways to make their product more useful, make their product more customized to what people want. And I think that, again, the choice that the innovator has, should I turn my efforts to rent-seeking, to, to look to Washington as a way to make higher profits, or should I turn my way to the consumer and try to make my product more valuable? We want people to turn their efforts to the consumer. And once we have this justification for patents, we're creating the wrong incentives for innovators. Well, yes. That's, that's, that's in fact, the second part of the story you were asking before about the, the, the industry, right? And it's not by chance that it's only when the industry matures, when that there are a few players uh, left over after the shakeout, when you know, when trying to make more profit by innovating becomes harder, and you have to put more effort into it, and the rate of return has kind of gone down. Right? It's no longer that people, you know, having the patents available, having the legal protection, that becomes the good way of making money. Yeah. Rent seeking, after all, is a way of making money for some people. Right. The one thing we have understood is that contrary to producing, rent-seeking is a way of making money for some people by taking away the money from others, whereas producing and exchange is a way of making money both of us. And that's the big difference. And yes, uh, you know, the, the, the point is the generalization of patent and, and, and the big increase and the presence of patents overall is a huge incentive to put your effort uh, into the rent-seeking and not into the producing and paying attention. I think that's, that's if you want, the main message is, is, actually, is actually that. Um, and, and again, the insistence on the empirical part, uh, I think it's very important. You made a, a beautiful example there. You know, this externality has been the new discovery of the last 25 years in economics. Now you have this attitude in which people pull, in fact, uh, you know, there's all theory that justifies patent on the base of externalities. And one way of justifying patents is on the base that there is an externality, this big externality from imitation, which induces an inefficiency because I'm copying you at no cost, and so you understand that, so you underinvest in, in the innovation. So the patent is a way of... Um, Aligning incentives in theory. Right. Aligning in theory. incentive by giving you the extra thing and preventing me from, yeah, and you say, well, yeah, perfect. It's a good theoretical argument. Let's see how relevant that is in practice. Uh, so one example we love that we got from Ivan Pinge, uh, a colleague at Singapore, was the Travel Pro, which is actually a perfect example of what I have. You know, I, I decide it's a theorem, even if I can't prove it with the data, which is, yes, it's true. Sometimes imitation is very easy, but when imitation is very easy and very cheap, it's because the fixed cost of innovating was also very low. And the Travel Pro example is the perfect one. Right? Travel Pro was the first company that came up with um, the roll-on. The rolling little suitcase. Yeah, the, the rolling. Uh, it's a glorious the invention. The carry-on we now all use. <laughs> they had the first, right? 
Well, you know, they were quickly imitated because as soon as you start producing them and people start strolling around airports with a carry-on, anybody can see the carry-on, and it's not such a complicated thing to figure out that, you know, you have to put a handle and a couple of wheels. And, and even if now it took a while to realize that putting four wheels is even better. Now, well, there's a lot of four wheels, much easier to carry around when they're heavy and so on. But anyhow, it's another example that it's not... Sure, uh, it was very easy for a lot of people to imitate Travel Pro. They didn't patent the idea. Uh, where they ran out of business? No, they're still in business. They're making profits. They're still one of the leading companies. They had a lead time for a while. And so from an economist's point of view, one say, was this incentive compatible for these guys? Obviously it was. Their opportunity cost of the little time they, they had to invest in that was relatively low, and they made abundant profits. And that made them going, which is another argument, which I think applies to the copyrights. We extend the same with copyright much more. People are here on, on this thing. We got completely confused right now. We, we're all living in a mythological world <laughs> in which we think if, you know, the, 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 the musician doesn't make tens of millions of dollars out of their song, they won't sing anymore. So taking away the copyright, right, this pure musician will stop singing for us. And he'll and 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 he'll become a um, a ditch digger, right? Exactly. We'll lose the we'll lose or a, Beethoven or a, or, a, or, a, we'll or a gas station boy. Yeah, we'll lose Beethoven. We'll lose Paul yeah, Simon. Absolutely. We'll lose the Madonna's Jonas gonna Brothers. going to go back to the bar in Jersey yeah. and start saving beers. Yeah, some of these would be a net social game, but on average, <laughs> on average, we'd say the music world is a glorious example of human the human uh, cre- human creativity, and we want to encourage it. So do, the question is, do we encourage it too much? Well, you know, my view on that, actually, by, by, by going around a bit and looking at this thing, I'm actually afraid that we encourage, encourage too little, because what we've done is to turn the continuous extension of copyright. So what's very interesting, right, copyright in music is a latecomer, by the way, in general, right? In continental Europe, it comes only in the second half of the 19th century, even in, 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 in England. Uh, it takes the son of Bach, I think, to, 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 to go to Parliament and complain and get the copyright extended also to music. But anyhow, it was a short period. We have been extending it so much. And the technological change in the production distribution of music has become so, so strong that it has reduced the cost of it. And the market size has multiplied by a couple of factors. That if you think of it, the superstar musicians now make so much money compared to what even a Frank Sinatra or the famous singer, say, in between the two wars would have made. That it's just there's no comparison. And that should, just that should lead us to pause, right? Is the opportunity cost of any of the current star, I don't know, Britney Spears, you choose, I, I don't follow very much, really so large compared to that of Frank Sinatra that she has to make 10 times as much money? Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Right. Well, let's I go keep the... asking. You know, the Beatles were guys that really had a low opportunity cost. They were good at nothing, whereas some of these um, bands of these days would all be what in Wall Street doing derivatives. Yeah, probably quantitative finance. I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they both. Yep, making millions of dollars every day. So we've got to compensate them to keep them in the music world. But but this is a relevant point. There is this whole roaring about the period and the extending the copyright. So this goes even beyond, frankly, our our argument. Our argument purely gives you a perspective. This one of the opportunity goes to look at it. It is be- become a bit of a joke. Obviously, the profits will go down. There's no doubt that if I cut copyright for what it is now to ten years, say that I think would be plenty in the current in the current uh, uh, market situation. Some of the profits will go down. 
But I actually believe the market will stop being a lottery as it is. You would have a lot the big companies that milk the market by uh, uh, pushing and, and, and the big stars and, and keeping the fences and keeping the gates for the, for the small guys will have no longer reason to exist and will probably be less of a lottery and more of a market with more players. So I actually believe that a reduction of copyright by changing the structure of the music, uh, the music industry would actually open doors to many more musicians than now. But you make a very important point that I think for those listening who are horrified at what we've been saying, and I, I want to mention that I have a lot of good friends who are uh, intellectual property lawyers, and they make a very good living in this system. And of course, they, uh, they are self-interested in this argument and discussion, as are the artists. It's really important to remember that when an artist tells you the copyright's crucial for their productivity, you have to take it with a grain of salt. But I, but I like my friends who are in uh, intellectual property, and I, and I hope they thrive and prosper, whatever they do, uh, and take care of their families. But I, it is um, – we have to concede the fact – I don't – I think it's important that the listeners realize is the point you just made, that profits will go down. Now, I think the worry is they'll go to zero. So I want to take that example as sort of a, an extreme case. So when Napster came along and was thriving – uh, a lot of people who love music, of course, uh, argued that it was it should be allowed to 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 uh, to thrive, and they those people were self interested. They liked the idea of not having to pay for music. The artists weren't very happy about it. They also were self interested. But those of us on the outside, the so called economists, thinking about this, what what should we have been pushing? Should we? It, was Napster a good thing? I mean, a lot of people argued Napster would take quote almost all the profitability out of the music, uh, out of the music business, at least recorded music, and it certainly dented. And, and similar competitors continue to dent uh, CD sales. Are you suggesting that if it was legal and above board, that the profits that would remain would be sufficient, or is that an empirical question we don't have the answer to? Well, we didn't at the time. So if at Napster, it is the one thing that we decided to go public about. It was the first time we took a position. In fact, I remember with David setting up a web page called Why Napster is Right. And then there's a little private story behind it that we have time, I'll tell you, that tells you a lot how business is done. But anyhow, um, uh, so at the time, we took a bet. And in fact, we were very careful in drafting the page. It says, you know, why Napster is right is, first of all, not a statement about is Napster legal. It's obviously legal given the current laws. You know, we had no problem. <laughs> it was a fact. Yep. Same that Pirate Bay, um, the, the, the site uh, that the Swedish Pirate Party had set up to provoke that was sent us just recently, obviously was illegal. And it's not obvious what the effort will be in the long run. The reason why we argue it's right is because it's showing what current technology can allow us to do and what the current property rights system in the music industry is preventing is blocking technological advances. So it's a useful provocation because it allows you to, to think about what we, we could not tell in 2000, 99, 2000, I think was the, the period came up, what the final outcome was, would have been. Now, actually, we can tell. Why? Well, because, you know, Napster is dead, but have you checked what's online? I, I don't. I'm not a... I'm not a um... I'm not a borrower or pirater or whatever phrase, neutral it. phrase. Well, you know, I do it for, uh, for scientific of reasons. Course, I do no, it for research purposes. Research. But when I was in Minnesota, <laughs> that I was very involved with this, I asked my dean for a special authorization. I mean, that the university was blocking all access to all kind of P2P 
software and I asked for an authorization to do it. Says, you know, I have to do research on this and I got it. So I actually, and, and actually jokes aside, I actually don't use it because it's very time consuming. And that's one of the reasons. So it's not true that it's free. And if you look around, there is everything potentially. But guess what? Yes, there was a dent in the CD industry, but not a big deal. Profitability hasn't gone down very much in spite of the fact that there is this stuff and this stuff is theoretically free. It's not free. It's very time-consuming. It's low-quality stuff. It takes a long time to find the thing. Sometimes you don't find it. Uh, it's incomplete. And in any case, you have to sit down in front of the object and just take time. What it does show, what it does show is that because the current industry, thanks to the copyright, can milk the cow and get huge profits without innovating, the incredible potential of digital distribution of music, the, the, the digitalization, the MP3, MP4 format, and the net has brought to us has not been exploited by this industry. Purely because, we go back to the argument before, they have no incentive. They have a nice rent to extract with a copyright. Why bother innovating and making the thing easier with the consumer? You understand? Yeah, they're fat Back in 2000, that thing had been around for only a couple of years. Now it's more than a decade it's around, and the music industry has made only a small step toward doing what Napster was doing. And that's a proof, that's like the proof, right, that badly allocated intellectual property creates bad incentive for innovation. Yeah, you, you see my point? Absolutely. Now, now my... My argument, and I don't know if you agree with it or not. My argument is, is that to me there were two arguments about that kind of that kind of example. Now, it's an important example because even though you say the quality is not as high, it's really pretty good. Uh, and for a lot of people, it's quote good enough. A yeah. lot of people yeah, would yeah, be did, happy yeah. to to save the ten bucks at iTunes and and get a free copy somewhere else, even if it's quote not as quite as good or et cetera. But what I thought was missing from the argument, and I wrote a piece on this, we'll put a link up to it, is that it ignored the potential for private solutions to emerge that would make those legal uh, – excuse me, to make those uh, distribution methods useful to consumers. And at, at a minimum example, and this is, this, is so, this is obvious, everyone understands this, maybe you won't make money, any money on recorded music and you'll make your money mostly on concerts. Maybe it'll be that, as we talked about earlier, you'll find ways to make your music that you distribute more usable and whatever that means. Maybe it'll come with the, the, you know, the lyric sheet. Maybe it'll come with a video attached to it that that's, does something. Maybe – who knows what people would, would come up with. And um, you know, when you go back to the, to the uh, idea of, of videotape, and you know, Larry Lessig tells the story, and I think it's true – the movie people were extremely uneasy about uh, Betamax and VHS initially because they thought it was going to, quote, destroy their industry. Oh, yes. They, they, were they, were, they were incredibly scared. One person would get one copy, yes. and then everybody could – first, they were worried people would crowd into the room, and then they'd only <laughs> sell one copy, right? And it yeah, seems – We all have little private theater for the right, neighbor in our, in our kitchen, do, right? And or and we do kind of have that, right? And yet – the movie theaters have gotten, as a result, have gotten better right. to, to be able to compete with that. They've been able to make some money, actually sometimes quite a bit, off the VHS, even though in theory you could copy it. You can get, as you say, you can get it free. People get free movies. I don't, but you can get free movies off the internet and sure not, not have to pay for them. But they're not quite as good. This experience doesn't come with every all the bells and whistles, and that's the way the world works. 
Right. And, you know, I, there was what, about two weeks ago, I was at about this, no, an hour later, I was in a, a round table, very interesting, Brian Cave, the the, 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 low, the very big loafer, right? they, have, um, they have a round table uh, once a week, and it was about in this, this specifically in the music industry. There was other people participating from the industry. One thing that came out, obviously, uh, is in the case of the music industry, this is really a technological progress, you know, that destroys some of the labor, uh, the, the jobs they have, and, and, and will force eventually the industry to complete the restructure. So it's true that the, the, this has nothing to do with the, the pilots, that the digitalization and the internet makes the current structure of the industry, some of those jobs, just useless from a social point of view. And, of course, those who are hurt by that are going to try to fight it, just exactly. like they do. But, with you know, the same thing is happening at GM and Chrysler. Yeah. The same thing has been happening in a lot of it. That's what technological – it's technological progress, baby. Steel. That's the way I'm know. sorry with steel. It works. I understand there are some, some loser in that game, and, and you want to play the game and, 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 and spread around the, the extra butter in a way that you make it incompatible for them. But the, the legal defense of a monopoly position ain't going to hold water. That's why I think, to tell you the truth, that's why I think these pirate sites are so successful. And this is really, I mean, it's, mine is a, is a pure bet, but it is the fact that you can still have to pay 20 bucks for a CD for music that could be sold legally on the Internet uh, at a couple of bucks, three bucks. Yeah, I'm surprised iTunes is still nine ninety nine for an album. It's nice that it's cheaper than the CD, but I'm surprised it's not it's still, much cheaper. Yeah, but you understand, iTunes has had the fact to accept it. Uh, I think they actually had a, a policy statement about that. The people copied. So uh, I did actually some little, uh, in the two years I, I taught here with the undergrads, uh, I did the, the little uh, sampling. And it seems to me that the true price there is 99 in the sense that their attitude is 1 out of 10. Meaning, meaning, I pay for one tune and I share with nine buddies who are sharing something for me. Right. So basically, the content, you know, you take your typical iPod and you look at it, it's got a few thousand things in it, and you say, how many of these did you buy? About 10, 15% of that. That seems to be the effective price. And, and the impression because I have is Apple is putting up with that and understanding that that's, that's part know, of that, the deal. That the people by private initiative are in some sense. <laughs> You know, they're burning CDs for friends, and then they yeah, put that they're, on their they're iPod. They're kind of lowering the price at close to the marginal cost. That's interesting. And I think that the big incentive the kids have almost uh, uh, to go to this illegal site is because the distance between what the price could be and what the price is on the market is so gigantic yeah. that it blows off your moral restraint. You say, what the heck, you know, I'm, I'm 20 bucks. And instead of thinking if you could download it for 5 bucks, Lots of people would refrain from doing the the, the the free downloading, and not just because it's time-consuming, as they said, but also out of a pure ethical thing. It says, you know, it costs five bucks. Why doing that? Right. Now, I think that's an interesting issue, the cultural norms and, and a yeah, band. Yeah, I think they're completely missing the boat, the, yeah. the music industry. Well, a band that you know bypasses the distribution system obviously can appeal to its fans and ask them to, to download and pay for a smaller price than the – than the uh, than the current price, but obviously that distribution system is providing something of value. There hasn't been as much of that as I thought there would be, and I thought I thought iTunes would become more of a of a record label because of its the interface is so uh, pleasant to use. And uh, but it it's not it's dented it a little bit, but not so much. Right. 
Well, let's talk about, we're going to get to pharmaceuticals, those of you out there who's thinking that, that those are a special case. But I, I want to ask you one other question before we get there, a couple actually. One is, who disagrees with you? Who, I'm sure there are people who hear your work, both the, the theoretical work we're not talking about here or the, the more accessible work in the book, which is totally uh, accessible to a, to a mainstream audience. Um, you must make some people really mad. Now, some of the people you'd make mad are, are again, lawyers who, who are obviously have made their own fixed cost investments in this industry and would be very hurt if, it, if the world changed. Some of them are people who currently have monopoly power because of the copyrights that they've gotten extended. But are there people in the economics profession who, who really disagree yeah. with you? Yeah. And uh, what, what is their argument? What are they, what's their counterargument to your, to your claims? Well, before I answer, yeah, so yeah, you made the right list. But I have to say something. So, for example, one, the one area where, from the start, we got uh, much more interested and, and warm reception was actually the, the, the legal, among legal scholars. And there, the reason was, if you want, one of uh, uh, quantity, in the sense that legal scholars that work on intellectual property are painfully aware that it's gone out of control. So even those, Lessig is an example, and Mark Lemley and Stanford and other are examples. They don't, uh, I think that maybe following the debate with us, they're changing their position. Uh, Mark just recently was, was getting quite close to what our position was. But their basic point is not that you would do without patent and copyright altogether. Their basic point is that if the thing has gone so much out of control, it has to be scaled back dramatically because it's become pure rent-seeking and and the property right efficiency part has, has, has got out of control. So they appreciated some of our points from the start. Obviously, the practicing lawyer, and I understand them, you know, don't, don't react very well because you're no. telling them, you know, you've got to change job, buddy. Um, but but that's, that's more understandable. In the profession, well, honestly, in the profession, the most negative reaction we have got for a long time, and it's now kind of uh, getting better, but it was, very, it was just a closure, was from the so-called new growth uh, people. And this we call new growth or endogenous growth literature. Our old friend and colleague, Paul Romer and, and, and followers and, and Bob. These were arguments. Their whole argument was that, that fixed costs play an important role exactly. in, in spurring growth. And we have, we have a nice interview with Paul that uh, you, you'll find a link to on the, on the web. Right. So that, that's their argument, and they have been repeating that. And I have to say… Explain their argument well, as best you can. Well, uh, the best I can. So their argument is the one we were saying before, and, and I kept saying it's an empirical argument. Their argument, so let me tell you Paul's argument and uh, the way I learned in class. Paul was, was my teacher, as you remember, as you were, by the way. Uh, people may not know, but I was a student at Rochester when uh, Russell, I think, was a young assistant professor there, and Romer was too. Um, Paul's uh, view was, and I think a confusion, I cannot help to see the confusion in the argument, is Innovations, technology, the thing, uh, the thing, economists call blueprints when they write a production function, okay, are public goods. And as such, they are non-rivalous and without legal protection, non-excludable. Hence, there is an intrinsic increase in return. Because if the, for a given technology, the production function has constant on scale in the standard factors, as you double the technology, you're going to have increasing those. So when you write it down uh, with all the, the proper factors in line, you get this, uh, this situation. Increasing return comes from the externalities, an externality from the technology, from the blueprints. B, 
based again on this idea that once an idea has been discovered, everybody can use it at zero cost. That's the basic uh, principle, the, the basic intuition behind that. Ideas, productive ideas, once discovered, can be used by everybody at essentially zero cost. And as such, so we want a lot of those. Huh? We want a lot of those because they're gloriously productive, and we want to make sure there's an incentive for people to find them. And since the profitability is going to be tough to sell, we need to give them a temporary monopoly. That's the that's the argument. that's the argument, right? right? And my point is that that argument is wrong even at the start. <laughs> that argument is really wrong. I think that I, I have no, oh, and I'm willing. In fact, none of the. Uh, I mean, I've offered many of the supporters of these of the other position to debate and, and discuss this anytime. I claim that argument is strictly wrong. Yeah, and that argument confuses abstract ideas with uh, actual productive ideas. And my claim is that productive ideas, that is the idea they are actually discovered, known, and can be used in production that have social value, are the opposite of the abstract idea. They're completely rivalrous and completely excludable. They're typically embodied, typically in the brain of somebody. So give me an so example. Let me give you an example, yeah. Russell. How do you, you, you and I earn a living? You and I earn I don't, a living. It's a mystery, actually, isn't it? <laughs> it's it's really a deep mystery. Yeah, you're kidding, but you're, you're not. No, I'm not totally kidding. I, you know, I think it's uh, one of the things I want to, I don't know if we'll have time, but I think it's fascinating how much stuff we give away. Uh, and we blog, and how much stuff, and we still do it. You exactly. Know, even though we don't make any profits from it directly, we make indirect profits. Ideally, not always. We're just expressing ourselves. We're running our mouths, but we're also teaching, which is a strange activity. Which is bizarre that people pay as much as they do for it. It's a very strange. It's a very strange thing that people pay as much as they do for our teaching, especially if you have polls and 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 associate model of the world in mind, because. Guess where you and I are making money? Who's paying for you, for your salary and mine? And our undergrads, and they pay tons of money to listen to what? To Russell Roberts and Michele Boudrin explaining to them the demand curve slope down. Yeah, something that's it's available. Not, that idea has been around for how many centuries? You can read it for free in a thousand uh-huh. places. Uh-huh. Right. So that's why do they waste their time listening to you and me? Um... Uh, uh, they're irrational. I mean, if there is a free <laughs> idea being reproduced millions of times, is that and that little derivative? I don't know if you use derivative and that I little don't. indifference curve and that budget constraint that slopes down and not up. I mean, this is not very deep stuff we keep teaching at basic where we get most of the coins. And so, how does it, how comes, you know, it works that way, not the other? And the reason is because it's not true that. It, there is not such a thing as the idea that once discovered becomes a public good and everybody can use it. There is a lot of potential ideas, abstract ideas, yeah. you know, that can be, there are certainly no rivals. The abstract idea that 2 plus 2 is 4 is no rivals. So it's true that I can have a copy made in my brain and a copy made in your brain. But it's the copy in my brain and your brain that has economic value. And those, those are totally rivals. If yeah, I'm the only one that knows that 2 plus 2 is 4, Either you torture me or you bribe me or I'm not going to tell you if I think it's worth <laughs> some money. Just a technical note. Uh, the phrase that, that McKelly is using is non-rivalrous, which is a technical term in public finance or microeconomics, meaning that there is – more people can enjoy it at the same time than just the owner, correct? Correct. Thanks, okay. actually, for correcting both my English and 
No, it's just uh, it's for for the non economists yes, out in the audience. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so you understand that that's the basic tenet. If once they they see that point, and it's very interesting. Can I do a little bit of historioeconomic thought on this? Yeah, go ahead. Because I think it's very curious. How sometime, and I wish Ken Arrow was listening to this. I told him this about ten years ago when I realized that sometime putting a I don't know, political finality uh, in front of uh, uh, serious research is damaging. The basic idea comes from a famous paper of Ken in 1962, I think, published in a volume by Nelson uh, on technological advance. I can't remember the exact paper. It's, a very, it's, it's the out of 1962 paper on information everybody always quotes. You'll find, we'll it, find on. it. You go into we'll Google, Ken yeah, Arrow, we'll 1962, Nelson, you'll find it on Google. Everybody right. knows it. It's public knowledge. Yeah, everybody knows it. It's already yeah. well known, Very. except I don't know it well, right now. Well, if you read that <laughs> paper, you realize that he talks about, that's the paper that founds that, you know, what we call information economics, the moral hazard aspect and all that on insurance, right? Um, but he talks briefly, in fact, only, uh, about innovation. And he wants to make the point uh, that the ideas and innovation are public goods and as such should be financed via the public purse because they're public goods. Which from a purely theoretical uh, point of view, if it were true that they were public goods, I think can position that says they should be financed uh, uh, by the public purse is actually more coherent than the other one that says, no, we should give away monopolies to people to come around with them. Right? But, but, that, but that's another story. Let's, let's leave it aside. And it's from there that the mistake comes. And it's quite clear in that, in that, in that paper that Ken is making a mistake. He's confusing the abstract ideas that are public goods, that are infinitely reproducible, that are no rivals, as, as you clarified, from the actual ideas that are the opposite. And it's from there that it stems. I mean, so the new growth theory in the 80s has just gone back to that thing and stuck it into a growth model and used the extra nine to get increasing return to build up the argument. But, 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 but the history of, uh, of the idea goes back to, to Ken Arrow. And it's very interesting. This is written in the early 60s, and it's because Ken Arrow is pushing the NSF hmm. <laughs> financing, the big financing through, yeah. the, through taxes of, of basic research. Yeah, I always <laughs> like it when economists tell me how crucial uh, government support of research is because of this externality. Uh, the social product from the millions, maybe billions of dollars that the NSF has spent on economics research is – I shudder at the, the value of it. It's been very good for some economists who got the checks, but uh, the, the benefits that spilled over to others I think are quite limited. And some of them are negative, some of those benefits. Right? They are. No, there's some dangerous ideas that were put out there funded by that money. And I'm sure that's true of other – Government-funded research as well. It's a, it's a it's a very mixed bag. Yeah, yeah. No, in fact, it, yeah, it's a very complex. And I think part of the confusion is that is this idea that this. And now, in fact, we're having this cake and eaten to a certain sector, right? Because then, when you realize, so take the case for example in medicine, if you want to go to the pharmaceutical. So now you have a situation which a lot of publicly funded research, to the moment it produces a, 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 some idea, some innovation that is patentable, turn into a private monopoly. Right. That's the argument. So that becomes even more rancid, and then it really gets tangled up, right? You don't understand anymore what's what, because you've got some argument there, you're financing this thing for all the positive externality, the social benefit, but then most of those are captured via the monopoly thing. Yeah. You're wondering... Now that's, let's turn to that, although I, I, before we do, I want to mention uh, to listeners that the podcast with Amar Bidet, which we'll put a link to uh, up on this, uh, on this podcast on the website, 
uh, at econtalk.org, that that podcast also talked about this very interesting distinction between the most public ideas that everybody can steal and then how they're actually implemented. And that the public ideas, we really don't care where they're developed, whether in America or anywhere else, but the implementation matters a lot. And they matters a lot because how people prefer to use the ideas is important. And I, I really like your idea, McKelly, of the camera built into a phone. So a camera and a phone is a goofy idea. If you told somebody that in 1970, they'd laugh at you because phones sat on people's you know, countertops and there'd be no use for it whatsoever. Somebody invents a cell phone that's good for talking to people and then enough people have them, you, can, you start to find it useful. Why would you ever want to put a camera in there? Well, somebody has that idea. And as you say, that idea of putting a camera in a phone, once somebody has thought of it and produced one, that's totally public. Anybody can get it. You can't hide it, that, that right. there's a concept like that. But the whole value of it is the implementation and how it's put into the phone and what you do with the phone. And what's the, how do you, do you, or can you email it? And can you put it up on a website? And what's the quality of the, phone, of the camera? I mean, and, and those, those things are all much more private and much less public. There's a publicness to them, to the process of putting the, the camera into the phone as well, right? There, there, that can be copied, as you point out. But I guarantee a lot of people, can, can figure that out very quickly. The idea that you could somehow get that, a patent on that because you thought of it first is a little bit absurd. I'm getting worked that up here. That you do, right? You have the one-click patent and so on and so forth. Right. This, this extension. And, and, yeah, before we go to medicine, maybe it's related to that, that also, and, and it's clearly coming up, the evidence. I mean, I'm not uh, such an empirical uh, uh, researcher. I, I, I do a bit, but, but people that are much more uh, dedicated, like Besson and all uh, the, the, the group working with him, are documenting that the negative impact that this patenting of everything, every small epsilon, is starting to become extremely damaging in areas like software. Because when you have complex objects that you're producing that use thousands of inputs, starting to patent this and that can actually end up patenting very key steps in the production process of dozens of other new products, yeah, and those get blocked. And so... You know, and again, one, I can't emphasize enough, and it, your book really forced me to think about it, I hadn't before. Okay, maybe there's an argument that something in there ought to be patented or not, but we know that the way the political process is going to react to that is to favor the entrenched existing competitor at the expense of the would-be competitor. And that's just that, – that public choice dynamic is, is disastrous. Right, right. And, and it is what we're facing right now. But I tend to do, when I go to debate that has to do with policy, obviously I take a position, if I have to do the policy, I wouldn't abolish pattern and copyright overnight. David is a bit more sanguine than me, and he would say, ah, we should try the experiment. I mean, I'm more <laughs> like, <laughs> I see them a bit like trade tariffs. You know, I'm a free trade guy, but I also understand from a practical point of view that if I abolish every trade restriction overnight, I'm going to have insurrection. We can do it slowly. I think, I think the idea of shortening the, the term is a good starting point. Right. You want to move slowly, shortening, and that would be a good way of experimenting. Certainly, as opposed to lengthening, which is the way we're, we're which going. Which is the way now. we're going, right. But let's talk about pharmaceuticals. Yep. Um, the standard argument there is, is that the fixed costs are extremely high. The research um, into a new drug is very uncertain. You don't know whether you're going to find what you hope to find. So the return is very uh, uncertain. And without patent protection, people would not seek out new new products. True or false? Or what do we know about it? Uh, right. So the true answer is that we don't know enough about it because pharmaceuticals are very uh, secretive about this. 
So we know the little that uh, essentially pharmaceutical made available. And by the way, in fact, we are trying to go back probably during the summer and after to this issue and try to get data from uh, friends that in the, um, amazingly, friends that we in the meanwhile we have built up in the pharmaceutical industry uh, and understand that a little bit better, maybe do a little booklet about uh, the specific of pharmaceutical. So let me tell you what we, the little we know. Uh, so that statement is both true and false, and you have to qualify it. Uh, qualification. One, most of the cost, and this is, um, this is, I think, well known, has nothing to do with the process of invention. It has to do with the clinical trial. Correct. Uh, in fact, by their own pharmaceutical industry, uh, estimate about 80% of the, what they compute to be the average cost of a new drug is clinical trial. Which means to the trials that are necessary to get FDA approval. Right, and, and we, we should go over that uh, uh, later because that, that is a public good for real, and, and it's a public good we impose to have and, and, and probably reasonably impose via a set of laws and regulations and so on, but then we should think hard how to handle that. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's one point um, that should be made. Um, the second, uh, the second point is that if you look at where, especially in the recent two decades, decades, um, there's a huge literature on this, where true effective new uh, active component come from. Strange enough, they come from small lab, from small startup company, typically um, the outcome of university lab research, the research of which was financed by public money. And they're then licensed to a large firm that has the capability so the of going through procedure, the... The typical procedure, if you're a medical researcher, pharmaceutical researcher, is that you get your research lab running, financed by NIH or whoever, NSF, whoever is financing you. Once you hit something that it can go commercial, you walk over to the patent office of your university. We use the um, Doyle, whatever it was, the other senator, um, Bill, I think. Yeah, uh, Bay, act, I think it's Bay and um, You sit down with these guys. You you know, they want a cut, you're going to get a cut, you're going to create a small company, a small startup outside, sometimes with a contribution university, sometimes with just by yourself. Uh, it becomes a one-product company. You develop the thing until you think it's ready. Uh, you patent it, obviously, in the meanwhile. Then you run over to the, you, you make a phone call over to the big pharmaceutical and says, guys, you want it? Um, I have the patent, I'll sell you, and we'll take it up, and then they do the legal work and they do the marketing. And so the big, the big farmers have actually become that object, uh, object that essentially take the product and commercialize and legalize them, and a lot of their costs have to do with that. So the question is, is that if that little creative... Is that efficient system? No. The question is, to start with, is that brilliant researcher in the small lab, would, what would that person be doing if the patent opportunity weren't there? Right. Um, and there I don't have an answer. The only thing I can say is that the little data I have, that's why, you know, there might be some room there. The little data I have does not show that since the Bail Dole Act and since the extension of patents in pharmaceutical, um, innovations have exploded and new marvelous drugs have come out that before were never produced and so on and so forth. In the chapter... Which have is, pharmaceutical profits gone up? Oh, yeah, you know that. That is a fact. I mean, I hate to say this because, you know, this is the, the kind of stuff you get on the anti-global um, 
uh, let's do let's do socialism online. So I, I hate to have to say, but it's true. And the reason you hate to say I mean, it, and the reason I, I have well, to say because it, I don't think profits are a bad thing. Right? You know? No, I feel the same way. And the problem <laughs> the problem is is that other people look at that and quote blame the pharmaceutical companies uh, as if they are the best place to finance um, cheaper drugs when it really is maybe the legal structure, the, the regulatory structure, etc. Right. Well, they provide them. No, no. The legal, you know, the, the, the big pharmaceutical at this point are. Uh, are at play with that. They want it. They have found a modus vivendi. They, they, they are making huge profits, very stable, their profitability. They've created a way of monopolizing markets. Uh, in that form, they're very happy with that. At this point, it's become a marriage. But it's true. It's a marriage that has evolved, and the industry has become what it, uh, what it has become, uh, partly because of some technological development, but mostly because of the legal thing. And that that it doesn't have to be like that. Uh, that we try to document in the in the, in the book and the example it of the Italian like... pharmaceutical industry, but of the the Swiss one is the most amazing. Right, the Swiss chemical pharmaceutical industry, which is so still so powerful, thrived without patent until 1978. And if I was born because Switzerland had no patents because of the constitution. Because the French chemical companies, all but one of them, run away from France into uh, the French-speaking part of Switzerland, <laughs> following the introduction of patent in the chemical at that time, the dying color industry. And all those that could not get the, 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 the main patent, which was actually the patent on the fuchsia color, uh, ran away because that was the only way they could keep producing their stuff without having to ask the pay for the license from La Fuxine. This is the second half of the 19th century. And it's quite amazing. And the Swiss uh, pharmaceutical company evolved uh, for more than 100 years in complete absence of patents. You say in 1978 or 1878? No, no, 1978. 1978. It's 1978. It's very interesting. There is a huge pressure, lobbying pressure, mostly from Anglo-Saxon pharmaceutical all over Europe. And uh, uh, the Italian Constitutional Court rules that uh, uh, the law prohibiting patent in uh, in uh, in Italy is a law uh, is not constitutional for some complicated reason. Never understood, but that's okay. And so Italy introduces patent in pharmaceutical for the first time. And about the same year, the year after, uh, um, the, the Swiss Parliament decides to change to change their constitution. Their constitution explicitly prohibited patents on, on mm. pharma products and chemical products. And, and pattern gets introduced. But this was true in, G- in Germany. That's another thing we learned. We really did not know. And this is actually amazing. Then you learn it, and it makes economic sense, right? We all know that the big chemical industry at origin was the German one, right. together with the Swiss. Right? And we actually caught up. We, you know, I mean, the, the Anglo-Saxon war, you know, we caught up with them, essentially, because we took away all their industrial secrets after the, uh, they lost two wars. We did once after the first war, and then we did the game on a much more massive scale, after the second war, and that's how we, we got their, their, their technology. Uh, but interesting, in Germany, patents on chemical products were prohibited for a long time. Mm-hmm. On the product, on the ground, that this is a natural element. If you, whatever chemical component you can assemble is assemblable, it. it has to be a product of nature and God. And as such, it cannot be uh, privately appropriated by anybody. On the other hand, because there are different processes that can lead you to that, then processes can be patented. And so that created the perfect mixture for a competitive industry, right? Mm-hmm. Because the product 
I could imitate, and then I have to compete hard with you on the process in order to become to make the same product in a cheaper way because I could not use yours. And that led to the uh, German industry becoming the dominant one uh, at the end of the 19th century, in spite of starting much later than the British one, which was much more advanced. By 1840, uh, the British chemical industry was was the dominant one, but 1890 was the other way around. That's very interesting. And it's interesting how the two different patents uh, played a role. So going back to the pharmaceutical, um, uh, as, as you say, you know, I'm being cautious. I'm, I'm saying there are examples that show, there's evidence that shows that we don't strictly need it. On the other hand, um, there are some elements of cost that are, that are huge. But now the clinical trial part, that's uh, a smokescreen. Why? Because that should be, if there is something on which we should put public money, that I'm, not that I'm happy to tax people and put public money anywhere, but if there is something we have to put public money, it should be on that, not on the basic research, because that is really a pure public good. At the end of the day, we want the test to take place, right, purely because we are, as a public concern, we are afraid of the principal agent problem. Right, they're going to say it's safe and... Right. They have an interest to say it's safe. They have an interest to do the hypothesis testing with a, you know, a, a big, big alpha, and we have an interest that they make the very, very small alpha. Of course, they don't want to kill people. That's not good for business either. But there's a temptation to shade in one. There's a temptation to be take yeah. a chance, right? You know, you can always change the name of the company. And yeah, but the question there is, is who should pay for it? As you say, you, you could make a case for the public paying for it, but you also could argue that private testing agencies with reputations would emerge uh, instead of an FDA, which is, I think, what would happen. But there is going to yeah, be a public no, no, no. I, I agree. I agree. So we could take two approaches. That One is to go and say, look, let's re- redesign the old mechanism and favor the creation of a market, uh, a private market for the production of that kind of information. Yeah. That's one way to go, uh, much more radical. The other one says, no, 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 I don't trust the market. You know, I'm kind of taking the political reality as it is. Okay. I don't think, uh, you know, if we push the line. Time for sell. Right. Uh, so let's take the political reality as it is. Says it, it has to be monitored by the public. It says, fine, but it has to be monitored by the public because it's a burden that we impose as a government, as a state, on the firm. It should be paid by the public. I mean, the NIH it's- money, there's no reason to send the NIH money into basic research, in my opinion, for the reasons said below, uh, above the basic research doesn't produce public goods, it produces very private goods mm-hmm. in the labs, the NIH money should go in financing the clinical test on a competitive basis. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. And that would take away most of the, of, of the money uh, from uh, most of the expenditure from the, from the drugs. An alternative change, system change is the, the following. Yeah. You keep the current one. So I pay, say, you know, the, the drug costs um, a billion 800 million of those have gone in the clinical trials, and I am the only company that has done it, and I am the only one that has the FDA approval. No patent, but I am the only one with the FDA approval, so I'm the only one selling it. If somebody wants to come in and sell the same drugs with the same active component, all they have to do is give me 400. We'll split the cost. I've already done the cost, the, 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 the clinical trial. No reason they do it again. That would right, be a social a, waste, wasteful. right? That would be a social waste. I mean, if mine has been done properly, there's no point in redoing the sampling. Well, split the cost, 400. A third company can come in, split the cost again. Right? Yep. Right? I don't see, you know, a, a well-done version of this simple idea has to, be, has to work. If the problem, 
if the reason why pharmaceutical needs the long-lasting pattern is the fixed cost of the clinical trial, then the answer is split it with the competitors. Is that legal? Yeah, okay. uh, no, no, it's not. We have to change the regulatory framework. But all you have to do is the FDA would not give part, approval yeah. until, un- yeah. unless these people have purchased um, access. The, the, their right by, yeah. by paying the, 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 the licensing model. Right. Uh, yeah, it's a licensing model, but it's a licensing model that is different, right? Because you, it's a mandatory licensing, and it, there is a very clear price. The price is the cost of the trial. Right. It's a bit different from... from, from Correct. The but anyhow, uh, on the pharmaceutical, it is complicated, partly because the industry has become uh, has taken a certain structure. But it seems to me that the argument that says absolutely we need the patent because the costs are so large is weakened by the fact that most of the cost of the clinical trial, and on the one hand, and on the other, there is plenty of examples of thriving uh, pharmaceutical industries, um, that grew without patent. But now the one we want to monitor is the Indian one. Yeah, you mentioned I don't know if you remember Sugato. He was a student of Ronald Jones at uh, uh-huh, yeah. Ryan Margit. He was around here in St. Louis the other day, and in fact, uh, he gave me a couple of the papers. And uh, the jury's out. You know, the, the, the Indian had a very thriving uh, uh, pharmaceutical industry. It was producing a lot of good stuff at low prices because they were not uh, enforcing patents. They decided to go patents with the WTO. And my prediction is their industry will monopolize, oligopolize, restrict, and become less efficient, make more profit. Less innovative, yeah. And less creative. Uh, is, uh, he works on that. He says, yeah, it seems to be ongoing, unfortunately, that way. But on the other end, we are gaining because some are becoming big, uh, big world players. We'll see. Uh, That's an we'll, interesting example. Yeah, we'll see. The experiment is being carried, over, carried out right now, so... So I want to close. We're, up, we're we're short on time. I want to close with something we haven't talked about that I think you have an interesting perspective on, which is just the nature of competition. Your book is really a, a story of Schumpeterian competition, where a new industry gets created really out of nowhere. Sometimes it destroys a bunch of existing competitors because of what the product's able to do. In the short run, that firm does very well. Uh, but soon competitors come along and, and knock it down and price falls, et cetera. That, that was the view of competition in economics. As you say, it's the Marshall view. Schumpeter jazzed it up a little bit and had some, some insights about it, obviously, and, and gave it a sexy name, Creative Destruction. But it, that view became very much uh, doubted by the theorists in economics starting around, I don't know, you tell me, in the 80s and 90s when game theory became the way to look at innovation. And there, there was a strong argument from the, the game theoretic approach, which was being first is really important. You get a certain natural advantage and you can get stuck, you can get in the wrong paths, et cetera. How does your insights and your study of the history of innovation interface with the Schumpeterian versus the game theory uh, view? Well, there are various brands there. This connects to the thing I was saying before with Ira. So, yeah, this, uh, I found the Schumpeterian view convincing, but the problem is that you have to be careful. Schumpeter wrote two books, and that is, there are like, it's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with, <laughs> uh, with Schumpeter on innovation. I like to make jokes that it's the good Schumpeter before he went to Harvard, and then there is the bad Schumpeter once he went to Harvard and got all, all messed up and confused and lost his economics. So the theory of economic development is the good Schumpeter. That's a, a book published in German in 1911. And that's the book that pretty much tells the story you described. 
then the next book, very few people actually know. Right. They know Schumpeter through capitalism, socialism, exactly. and democracy. Exactly. Is that the bad Schumpeter? Uh, have you ever read it? I have. I, the part of it is phenomenal. Well, the part where he says we have to remain free and yeah. the socialism is bad, right? But not the part of you're right, right? But you understand, he's concerned. But remember, Russell, back then, that's the same time, roughly, I mean, a few years earlier, this was published, I think, in 42, 43, but it's the same frame of mind that people had, and Hayek correctly criticized in Road to Serfdom. What is he saying? He's saying socialism works. It's a bad thing because it limits my freedom, but economically, guys, the system is working. They were all confused, right, this idea that under Stalin steel was being produced by the thousands. So he is concerned. He says, damn it, we are facing a complicated problem here. We had a big depression. We got out of it only through, you know, he fought, he fought, you know, uh, all the planning (laughs) policies. The Russians are working fine. All socialism is working fine. They have all the planning, the big thing. Capitalism is a mess. We can win the battle only by innovating. And then he goes into this absurd conclusion that is the second part of the book, that the way to innovate is to have these big oligopolies. And remember, this defense there is not even the fixed cost. It's the ability to plan. Uh Remember? He, He talks a lot about the fact that you need planning because the productive process has become very roundabout, very complex, and you cannot let things just happen in the market, when you need this ability to plan. I really, I haven't read that part. I've only read part yeah, two, yeah, which is phenomenal. Yeah, no, no, the part again, he's very concerned about it. But he sees the, the market system uh, weaker respect to the socialist system, and he thinks uh, way out of that is the big uh, multinational that has big, big resources, yeah. can put in the big plan, can look uh, forward for a decade and don't have to look at the quarter report and so on and so forth. So that actually affected a lot, I think, uh, that line of research in, in I.O. In fact, all the famous I.O. guys after that all claimed to be Schumpeterian, Scherer, and so on. And uh, poor George Stigler, well, not poor, I mean, George Stigler, he was a solitary fighter, and if I didn't fight much, Stigler knew when to pick up a fight or not, and he would not pick up uh, fights where he was bound to lose because it was... But Harold Dempsey pointed out to David and us that there is a paper by Stickler in a completely unknown volume published on the 25th anniversary of the Social Science Research Building at Chicago, in which Stickler literally, verbally says what Boldrina Levine says in the book. I mean, with the same logic. And it's all anti-Schupeter, and he explains, look, it's competition that produces innovation. Here are the examples is how people make money. Even runs a little regression that nobody has, has run since. He goes, he has database. This is a, a, a paper written in 1950, published in 1956. He has data from the 20s, 30s, and 40s for a few industries. And he uses measure of competition to try to explain in a statistical sense the growth rate of labor productivity. Something that actually current research doesn't doesn't do. They go and, and look at how many patents people have and instead of looking at the true measure of innovation, which is labor productivity. And he, and he finds uh, coherently with his uh, uh, idea that the industry where competition indices are high are also industries where the growth rate labor productivity uh, goes up. So the real origin of, of, of the bad uh, view that it's patent are essential is actually um, the, the second Schumpeter. Game but, theory, you understand, contributed, uh, game theory is a mixed bag there. Remember that some of the initial game theoretical contribution pointed out that you can have too much 
uh, effort in the presence of patenting because of the effort of the winner takes all leads to a situation but, where you, you you know all the sort of surplus is the lottery. That's the lottery story. But that's the, the lottery story. But, yeah. but the issue that I want to I, I want to focus on is competition, and I want to mention. I'm glad you mentioned Stigler in his book, The Theory of Price. He has, which no one uses anymore, but it's a wonderful book, and it's yeah. quite and it's quite a difficult book. It's consi- you know he wrote it as a intermediate micro text, but it's quite subtle, and there's a lot of deep things in it. He has a chapter there I'll never forget called uh, the Quicksilver Nature of Competition, and it's really the Marshallian story that that you outlined earlier. Yeah, yeah. But the game theory part I'm interested in, and is this issue of how competitive the world is. It seems to me that most game theorists see the world as not very competitive, that there are all these opportunities for strategic ways to gain the upper hand and, it, and it's going to stifle innovation. You know, the fixed cost argument that it, the story you told at the very beginning, you know, you, you create a, a, uh, a place to sell genes and the new competitor comes along and, and, and the, in one game theory world, again, these are always theoretical, they're never real, but in the game theory world, as the as the first comer into the industry, I threaten you that if that if you are going to add your store, I'm going to just add ten or twenty. And since I got here first, uh, I'm just going to drive the price down to zero. You'll never get your fixed costs back. And then when you leave, I'll just uh, jack the price back up. These yeah, kind of yeah, stories yeah, are very yeah, common, yeah, and yeah. your 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 story is very to me very different. Uh, I agree. I mean, as you notice, I am resisting a bit uh, to, to put some blame on game theory at large. Maybe because my co-author with whom uh, we developed this are is why you know widely recognized famous game theory. So they're not all. <laughs> some of them understand competition very well, and I see. I'm sure David's view of competition is pretty close to mine, as it, it kind of grew up together by talking. Um, but yes, I mean, I mean, my view of competition is the one you describe, and I, and I think things work much more a la Marshall, Stiegler, you know, Schumpeter than in the, in the very strategic uh, um, way you described. Uh, yes, no, I agree. Uh, I agree on the fact that game theory and certain game theoretical arguments have been used uh, by making assumptions that are bending back in a very complicated way. To, to develop arguments that are um, um, that don't allow for a good understanding of how competition works, but I resist a bit uh, to to. I think that if I have to put a blame, honestly, Russell, I put it more on us, the general equilibrium theorists, that took yeah. a, to an abstract view of competition at a certain point that it was boiling down to you know, essentially price-taking, a common price, that's it, and we lost, uh, and Stigler was complaining about that, and he was right. Uh, we lost the dynamics uh, yeah. process into it. Yeah, we need to get back to that. Uh, that, that would be, uh, and game theorists, yes, obviously, you know, it's their, it's their job, so to speak. They want to try to figure out where the strategic component is and uh, in the... But uh, sometimes it can be useful. Let me let me actually close this. The, the typical model, game theory, can also be very useful to understand why certain arguments are illogical and why certain assumptions don't make sense. So let me go back to the uh, when we where we started the conversation. What's the basic model that we're trying to kill? And the basic model we're trying to kill is the one that says, "Look, there's a fixed cost, and if you like uh, allow imitation, then." Profits will dissolve, and this guy will not pay for the fixed cost, right? right. That's the very, very basic, super intuitive argument. And the reason why they say prices are going to go down and marginal cost is because they're assuming that people will play Bertrand, right? Right. Well, 
Well, this is an observation that David made one day, and then we sat down and checked, and, and he, he was correct. He says these guys are wrong even in their own argument. So let's assume that this standard argument is correct and use a little bit of game theory. So there is Russell Robert, the potential innovator, and Michele Baudry, the potential imitator. Okay, so Russell obviously moves first, right? I have to imitate you. Right. So Russell moves first and decides to innovate. He spends minus F. Hundred million dollars. Yeah. Okay. Right now he's sunk the the hundred million dollars in the fixed cost, right? And he's getting ready to roll on the market. When Michele looks at him and says, hmm, "Maybe I can imitate Russell." So Michele's choice moves second is imitate or don't. If Michele does not imitate Russell, Michele spends nothing, earns nothing. His payoff is zero. Russell remains the happy monopolist, makes a truckload of money, pays for the minus hundred million, and goes to the Bahamas for the rest of his life. <laughs> Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one outcome of the game, right. right? Well, I claim that that is the only equilibrium of this game, because let's consider the other one. Well, Michele decides to imitate Russell. It's a cheap imitation, so he spends 10 bucks <laughs> instead of $100 million. He's really, you know, he's also Italian, and he's a cheap guy. 10 bucks, and he, and he copies uh, a Russell, right? Now both of them have the product, and they go to the other equilibrium. They play Bertrand. They kill each other. What's the payoff? Russell is losing $100 million. Michele is losing 10 bucks. Hey, guess what? They're both worse off. Yeah. Michele is worse off, too, according to the argument. So because he, is, he might be cheap, but he ain't stupid, he's not going to imitate. So you understand? That model, if you work it out logically, I'm not saying it's the right model. I'm just saying, but the point is the assumption. But if I work out the model logically, I get to an absurd conclusion. That there's never gonna that the first guy in gets a monopoly and no one ever ever exactly. challenges ever. The first guy any. always gets a monopoly and nobody ever imitates, which obviously is not what we observe in reality either. So something is wrong. And what's wrong is the unbounded capacity that leads you to play Bertrand. Bertrand is a French correct? French game yeah, other yeah, French, game theory from what year? What, what well, time? back is uh, is old. Is uh, shortly after Cournot, I think. But this nineteenth uh, century. Yeah, yeah, nineteenth century. And his idea was, you know, when you have unbounded capacity, um, everybody produces, <clears throat> and therefore they're forced to sell at marginal cost because Zero. it's unbounded capacity. You have to give it away. You have to give it away. You have to give it away, basically. But but you understand that that is the assumption that leads to the insane conclusion. That's one good way of figuring out what's wrong by, by, by looking at the implication, right? And it links to the Bromer's idea. It's true. If imitation and copy, making copies of idea was completely costless, we would have unbounded capacity. But that's not true in reality. It could be close, but it's not zero. Well, maybe close sometimes, right? But it's not exactly true. And when, when it, being close is not the same thing. That's, that's the important thing. The being close is not the same thing as zero. Something is, it makes a big difference there. And then, you know, from, from the theoretical point of view, that's our point. And from the empirical point of view, is hey, look out there. But, yeah, I don't want to pound on, uh, I don't want to pound on game theory or make you pound on. I just want to salute your, uh, <laughs> the, the ideas of competition that are both implicit and explicit in the book are very, um, I like them a lot. I think, uh, but that and the empirical nature of the book is also a, a very good thing. My guest today has been McKelly Boldrin of Washington University in St. Louis. McKelly, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Russell, thanks a lot. This was a pleasure. Nice conversation. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Everything Voluntary, a podcast where I promote respect for the voluntary principle in all walks of life and for all age groups. 
You can rate and review this podcast in your podcast app, and please share it with everyone you know. Please consider supporting this podcast and everythingvoluntary.com by setting up an automatic monthly donation at patreon.com forward slash EVC. One-time donations are also accepted at paypal.me forward slash everythingvoluntary.